Hi, I'm Karen Tumulty. Uh, I'm a reporter with Time Magazine, and uh, I cover politics. I'm the national political correspondent, which means these days I cover health care. And uh, I think we have, a, we have a very interesting panel here today. Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been amazed in covering the health care debate so far at how much of it really has centered on this question of a, of a so-called public um, option. And so that's what we're going to be talking about here in the question of another government health insurance program. And um, one of the questions is, it, it, again, public option, public plan has become something that people throw around, but it's, it's never been sort of defined as to what this thing would be and how it would work and what it would mean. And so I think that's one of the things that, that we're going to be uh, pushing our, our panelists here today about. And so I think I'd probably like to go right into their presentations, and then we could get to your questions as soon as possible after that. So first, um, I'd, I'd like Kathy Schoen, uh, who is who is a senior vice president at the Commonwealth Fund, to talk about the, the different kinds of models you could actually have for one of these things. Thank you. And I will be talking off some charts. And so I think magically a chart will come down here. And then someone just needs to, I don't need to do anything. And then uh, up is the right arrow clicking forward. Yes. Okay. Um, I think we sent this in advance of the talk, so I'm, I don't want to go into a larger framework. But what I'm going to be talking off of is some work that the Commonwealth Fund's Commission for a High-Performance Healthcare System um, sponsored in looking for a path that would reverse the trends we've seen of ever-rising costs with evidence of low value, change the delivery system, while also assuring that we get coverage for everyone, and do payment reforms. So this path to a high-performance health care system was perceived and designed as an integrated set of policies that went beyond just insurance to using insurance as a base for both paying differently, for investing in systems, and I know you had a discussion of the need for delivery system reform earlier. What I'd like to talk about today in the focus of a public plan choice is why putting a public health insurance choice in the midst of this integrated set of strategies can make a difference and for whom it makes a difference. And I think um, just as a reminder of where we are in the United States, I think it's important to take a look both internationally as well as domestically. We are by far the most expensive country in the world, um, spending about double what other countries do per person, far more as a share of income. And the rate has been increasing faster in the last 10 to 20 years than other countries, even though many of them have a far older population than we do, and get results that are often equal to ours. So that's this notion that we aren't getting value and commensurate with the amount we're paying, and we should be expecting much more, much better outcomes. At the same time, what's been driving reform is broad public perceptions and the reality of losing coverage. We've both got rapidly increasing numbers of uninsured, but we also have an increasing number of underinsured, people who get an insurance surprise when they get really sick, which is a very large bill that's not covered. It's behind a lot of the second mortgages on homes, credit card debt, and there's a wide, wide perception that insurance today may not get you good access to care and may not provide financial protection. And part of that erosion, or a major part of that erosion, is the high costs of care. People have been trading off wages to keep their premiums, and both in the public sector and in the private sector, this is causing stress. So the notion of a path in a new direction has embedded in it that we want quality, we want access, but we also, also want to moderate costs. And that's where I think it's very important to be considering a public health insurance choice in the midst of choices. And there's several 
rationales for why one might do this. One is that it does, in fact, broaden the choice that the population has. As I'll show you on the next slide, in most states of the country, the top two commercial insurance plans dominate the market. We have a very monopolized insurance sector when you go to look at what choices you have for where you're getting care. We also have monopolized provider sectors. A public plan offers potential leverage, purchasing leverage. We are in a position of being unique among countries on having public and private insurance sectors. And there's an opportunity to build on the strengths of both, where the private insurance side is far more able to use management network techniques than a publicly sponsored plan could. Um, so, but there's a way of putting them in competition with each other, which would make each better. We can also look at a public plan to start to address, by bringing groups together, by consolidating risk, some of the administrative cost inefficiencies we have in the United States. We are by far the most expensive country in terms of the way we run our insurance system. Far more of our premium dollar goes to overhead and profit margins than even countries like the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Germany that run multi-payer systems. They only take about 5% of the dollars. And Last but not least, um, when we're thinking about the federal costs of expanding, a, a public option, and there can be structured in multiple ways, potentially depending on the way it pays, offers a less expensive way to expand coverage. Just to give you um, a, a quick review of a couple of the points I just made before going into some examples of how you could structure a public plan choice, is this is a fairly recent map of the United States in terms of market dominance. The dark blue color, it, for I think you can see it, but is uh, top two plans having a share of 80% or more. The next lightest is 70% or more. We only have three states now where the top two have less than a 50% share. We have 21 states where the top two have 70% or more of a market share. This dominance has occurred because there are, in fact, economies of scale as insurance starts to amalgamate. But it also means that you can get fairly high profit margins and top-heavy administrative structures because there's really nowhere else to turn. And the carriers right now, many of them make money by simply marking up claims costs. Employers have not done a very good job of keeping these overhead costs down, often because they do not have a choice. Um, to just give you a, a little bit of a view of what those administrative costs look like, and this is as a share of premium, the average is in the 14% range, but the top five companies, very dominant country companies, are taking 17% or more of the administrative do premium dollars toward the top. This includes before-tax profit margins, and it was as high, it has been as high as 20%. Our public programs run for far less, and when we look internationally, whole countries are running their care systems for 5 to 6% of administrative costs. And I'm not talking about the administrative costs inside a doctor's office and inside a hospital's office, where our very fragmented insurance system means more billing clerks, means more time for the nurse and the doctor, because everything is just a little bit different. You have to call on the benefits. You have to call and fragment. So we have an opportunity to lower administrative waste. What does a public plan bring to all of this? Um, I think a good way to illustrate it is actually to provide you with some estimates of what difference it would make if you put a public plan into the mix. And I want to stress that all the following slides that I'll be talking, showing you briefly, are using the same payment reform. So we're assuming Medicare starts to pay differently, pay primary care better, pay in a bundled way, that there are strategies to bring in IT systems to have better knowledge about what works well. So those system and payment reforms are the same in all three scenarios. And the earlier panel was talking about insurance reforms that bring everyone in, have everyone participate, and have plans compete on the basis of value. So it's the same insurance market reforms. The three different scenarios that we had the Lewin Group model for us is a public plan that would be sponsored by the federal government but operate in every state of the country that would come in paying near Medicare rates using the Medicare provider um, levels. 
the next is a public plan that would come in at an intermediate rate, about halfway between the best rates the private sector gets and what Medicare does. So it come in with a new payment rate. And in all these cases, the public plan would be self-sustaining. It would charge premiums that would cover the cover the costs of care. So we're talking about an, a regular insurance system. Both public and private would abide by the same market rules. So those stay the same. And as you look at these three possible scenarios, the third is no public plan at all. So doing an expansion basically through private insurance markets, offering people vouchers or credits to buy into existing insurance markets. So the third option is buying in at private payment rates. And I want to stress that all of this around the public plan is partly a, an issue of leverage and a partly an issue of how much we drive moderating the costs over time. All three of the scenarios, because they do the same insurance market reforms, cover everyone or reach near universal coverage. Um, in the modeling, it gets to only about 1% uninsured after enactment, assuming that all roll in. And this includes an individual mandate as well as subsidies to help make the insurance coverage affordable. These were all modeled with the same benefit packages in mind. And that 1% uninsured are the hard-to-reach people that you, you probably are not going to find, and we've seen other countries with universal coverage never quite get to 100%. So it really is getting to near universal. The big difference between the three scenarios, again, with payment reform and system reforms, is how quickly they start to bend the cost curve of the country. We are currently at about 17% of national income of GDP going toward health care. We're on our way to 21% by 2020. All three would slow the rate of growth. The public plan paying at Medicare rates will slow it by almost 1.5% on an annual basis. The next, the intermediate, about 1%, and private plans only at less than 1%. And that looks like a fairly marginal change in the cost curve, and indeed it is, because over that decade, or 11 years, we'll be spending over $40 trillion. Um, but when you slow the rate of growth on that base, it amounts to a lot of money as you add it up. The Medicare public plan coming in paying near Medicare rates, but with, with a reform payment system, would result in national savings of about $3 trillion, intermediate rates at about $2 trillion, and private only would, would save a little over $1 trillion, and that's because the public plan is covering fewer people, so you're rolling out payment reforms more slowly. We know that when Medicare adopts new payment methods, if they work, the private sector often adopts them also. In fact, Medicare has led on this on several occasions, but the adoption isn't instantaneous. With a public option adopting the same payment reforms, you're spreading them quickly. All of these three scenarios have very different underlying cost savings as well. The public expansion rapidly because it does run with lower administrative costs, saves by far the most in administrative costs, well over $200 billion. Private option only increases administrative costs unless we can do something to bring plan costs down. At the start, the competitive dynamic in the insurance markets is quite different. If you insert a public plan that is paying either at Medicare rates or at something higher than Medicare rates near private, you're offering a premium that is lower for the same set of benefits for the same population. And particularly with the notion of exchanges and connectors, you have potential of drawing people into a more efficient marketplace and putting up a, a benchmark that says compete with me both on overhead costs on quality and on experiences and introduce this new choice. And these are Lewin estimates where they're assuming a fairly passive private insurance market. We think that the private insurance carriers, in fact, could be quite nimble. They have much better ability to bargain hard when it comes to network design and care management. So aside from the pricing differences, they can get um, premium savings if they choose to do so. And if they're at risk of losing market share, they're likely to act. The three scenarios have quite different impacts on federal costs as well. If you're expanding coverage to the uninsured and providing premium subsidies or premium assistance for low and modest income 
people, if you're buying them in at what are often quite high private rates, it will cost you more than if you're buying them in at intermediate rates or at lower rates. Over that period of 11 years with payment reforms and savings, you can offset the cost of the federal government, but the private plan only scenario will always result in the highest federal cost unless you just buy less coverage. This is all assuming buying the same coverage. The administrative costs come down dramatically to the extent you pull the market into an insurance exchange. Um, Exchanges, as you heard a little bit this morning, I hope, from John Kingsdale, have the potential for real efficiencies, although Massachusetts is just starting to um, approach some of those levels. If you can get more standardized benefit packages, make it easier to choose, Marketing costs go down, churning goes down, as well as underwriting. So we think private carriers could do much better on administrative costs as well. We've seen in the Medicare marketplace where there is competitive bidding that many private bids come in quite close or below Medicare. So it's not that private plans can't compete. So if you you think in terms of being flexible on where you peg the starting payment rates to have them be rational payment policy, you can in fact get a competitive market. And I'll close there as I turn to the other panelists going back to why why you want to consider a public plan choice. And also it's one of the reasons it's become a flashpoint in the debate. It's partly because there is the potential to bend the cost curve. There are real potential cost savings to the federal government and the nation. For households by year 2020, either of the public plan scenarios starts to mean that the average household would be spending $2,000 less than they are now. And that's across all income spectrums. High-income people who are now facing ever-rising premiums would see slower growth in premiums for better packages, returning more in wages. For providers, to the extent we bring in the uninsured and start paying for them, and these all assume people are insured, and we bring Medicaid rates up, which was modeled for a more level playing field across the public sector, private revenues will go up because the uninsured are now paying, Medicaid is paying well. And if you pay differently, there's a real opportunity for internal efficiencies, particularly on the administrative side. And as I mentioned, on the federal sector, there's the opportunity to bring it in at a lower cost. So the path scenarios here, all of them get you a high yield, including the private only, if you do payment reform. But payment reform becomes much more difficult if you're relying a a series of private insurance all to adopt it and to have the purchasing power in monopolized provider markets to drive change. The public plan offers you a potential new dynamic that will get you faster to better access, quality, and efficiency. Thank you. And uh, next, we're going to hear from Gail Walensky, who's listed on your program as a senior fellow at Project Hope, but she also has the experience of having run a public plan during her time as the head of HICFA between 90 and 92. She was also the first chair- chairman of MedPAC from 97 to 2001. Thank you. You stole my introduction, as to say that uh, you're going to hear some comments for somebody who's been there, tried that. I'm going to uh, urge uh, a note of caution uh, about waving your hands from going from where we are now, which is where Medicare is the last bastion of a la carte fee-for-service medicine with the biggest silos we see in healthcare, uh, to the world that uh, Kathy just described uh, as having brushed over all of the how do we exactly get to this new world uh, where we have payment reforms, uh, accountable health care plans, and the rest that are uh, uh, already adopted. Um, One other introductory comment, and that is that uh, 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 Kathy's closing comment was that uh, the reason that you are uh, seeing this as a flashpoint uh, is because uh, of provider pushback. Uh, I would say, actually, uh, it's the other Lewin estimates that suggest uh, you could have 120 million people in this public plan if it is paying at Medicare uh, rates. That is at least as much of a, a flashpoint. The provider community has not yet organized. Uh, whether it will, we'll have to see, uh, in large part because of the details uh, in terms of exactly 
uh, where the funding for health care reform will come from uh, has uh, only slowly, uh, starting somewhat uh, last Saturday, uh, been leaking out aside from the down payment, which only had a, a couple of uh, line items. So uh, uh, there really isn't very much uh, uh, indication of who's going to be asked to be the major or minor contributors uh, to the plan. Um, Right now, we are at a point, as I've mentioned, we are just beginning to understand the dimensions of what the cost might be uh, and, therefore, how we will have to pay for uh, the cost. Uh, This may well be the most contentious issue uh, as more detail is provided uh, and it really becomes clear who's going to be asked to give up what relative to the current uh, world. However, aside from the funding uh, of what is likely to be a very uh, expensive proposition. Uh, it looks like a uh, full blast. We're talking about $1.5 trillion, uh, more or less, uh, over 10 years, even for somebody used to run Medicare. Uh, when you start using the T world, uh, it begins to take you aback in terms of the kind of, uh, of dollars that you're talking about. Uh, but aside from that, uh, the public plan is clearly the most contentious issue. Um, I regard uh, the discussion of the public plan uh, as really a discussion of what is likely to turn out to be uh, regulated private insurance versus a public plan with or without private payers. I think that's ultimately the direction that the discussion is going to go. I'm going to share with you uh, why it is not clear to me uh, that there is a compelling need for a public plan per se, Uh, Although, uh, as a final word, I'm going to share with you why I think a spin of the co-op option that Senator Conrad has raised uh, is something that I think uh, could well be the attractive compromise uh, we see in our future, uh, particularly if you regard it as a fallback option. Um, I do regard the regulation, uh, increased regulation of private insurance, particularly Uh, the issue of guaranteed uh, issue and renewability, a part of our future, and have advised uh, plans that ask me that uh, they ought to assume that. Uh, It sounds like as long as everybody needs to have insurance so that you don't have overwhelming problems of uh, adverse selection, uh, that is something that is understood uh, and acceptable. Uh, But the reason I say I don't see the compelling need for a public plan really has to go with where else I'm looking and what I see the experience uh, of our major public plan, uh, Medicare. Uh, When I look at our favorite wannabes these days, that includes the Federal Employees Health Care Plan, Massachusetts, Netherlands, they actually don't have public plans. Uh, the Fe- Federal Employees Health Care Plan uh, obviously uh, doesn't have a, a public plan. It is the government acting uh, as an employer, but the offerings are private insurance. Uh, the Netherlands has quite regulated uh, private insurance, uh, but not a, a public plan per se. In fact, uh, most of the places uh, uh, that you may uh, look on these wannabes uh, don't seem to find the need of a public plan in a world of uh, regulated private insurance. Now, you need to be careful. Uh, You may well regulate private insurance so much uh, that you make it very difficult to have uh, innovations uh, go forward, Uh, but it does seem to me that is at least a legitimate option. What I'm really concerned about uh, is whether or not ultimately you will be able to sustain a robust uh, private plan offering in the face of a significant public plan. Uh, There are, uh, particularly if you uh, grant that public plan the right to set pricing, uh, as uh, has been suggested, as one of the options uh, by Kathy. It is certainly looked to uh, as uh, one of the compelling features for many people uh, because of the scoring, uh, favorable scoring, uh, that might result. Uh, I think there is a question as to whether or not in uh, over any sustained period of time this type of public plan uh, would be um, compatible with private offerings. What I find particularly frustrating is we could have found that out uh, if, in fact, the provision for having competitive bidding uh, in areas where there was robust private sector plans uh, had been allowed to go forward in the 2003 Medicare Modernization Act. 
uh, many of you might not have paid attention to this provision, but the House bill that was passed had a pilot that was supposed to start next year where any area that had at least 25% participation in private plans would have direct competitive bidding go on (coughs) between traditional Medicare and the private plans. It seems to me, before we go introducing the concept of a public plan, uh, which at least has the potential uh, of displacing private insurance over the long term, that that would be a first activity to have started, and we can always go back and resurrect and see in a world where we have a public plan and we have private plans, what happens when you have them compete uh, in a direct way, head-on-head. It is hard not to find irony. Uh, Irony is actually not hard to find these days uh, in uh, healthcare uh, in general, as someone uh, who is getting um, uh, battered a few months ago about the concept of uh, taxing employer-sponsored plans. Uh, But uh, it would be uh, important to try this out Uh, Before we assume what would happen going forward, we could see uh, how these two worlds exist uh, in a case like Medicare where we actually have uh, both of it. But it is really looking at the kinds of problems that we have experienced in trying to introduce some of the innovations uh, that Kathy has talked about. Um, I am feeling some frustration that we talk about the world where we want to go. Uh, we talk about the known problems of variations in healthcare delivery that don't seem to be associated uh, with uh, desirable differences in terms of healthcare outcomes uh, or uh, responding to patient preferences. But we are spending precious little time talking about specifically how are we going to get from where we are. Uh, to those other worlds. In fact, it's this that really probably causes me the most concern with the concept of the public plan, and it's because I look at what I have seen from Medicare, both as administrator, as chair of MedPAC, uh, and as informal advisor either to administrations and the Congress, and that is the most difficult thing for a public plan to do is to pay differentially according to quality or efficiency for what is reputedly the same service. So that while in the private sector you have had some innovative demonstrations of trying to designate the clinicians and institutions who are the highest quality uh, or the most efficient and steering people to those places by having lower co-payments or otherwise designating these as star performers or centers of excellence, it has been impossible to date to do that in the public program. The political pressures have been enormous, and the notion that we can somehow dub this new public plan to be free of all those kinds of political pressures seems to me inconsistent with the experience uh, that we have had in trying to do these same changes uh, in terms of Medicare. Uh, As I've mentioned, I see the co-op idea uh, as potentially an interesting way to try to come to a compromise. Uh, I am somebody who believes uh, if it is at all possible, we need to have whatever it is we choose to do with health care reform, bipartisan in a significant way, by which I mean more than one or two Republican votes, if at all possible. If the Democrats hang together, clearly they have the votes to pass Legislation. Now, that's a, a big if. It's been known not to happen when Democrats control both houses in Congress uh, and the White House. But I think it is more likely that we will actually see health care reform pass now because it is so important uh, in terms of the health and well-being uh, of our citizens uh, as well as one-sixth of our economy. It would be very important to try to craft areas of bipartisanship in some of these very contentious areas. And it's here where I find uh, Senator Conrad's idea of having a co-op, a not-for-profit entity owned by individuals and small business owners, uh, as an interesting concept, particularly if you put it in the context uh, of the Part D Medicare fallback idea, Uh, because it may well be Uh, that if there is uh, a subsidized uh, insurance market available, uh, we will see a lot more comers show up uh, than uh, than we think. It's hard for us to imagine or remember now uh, that uh, prior to 2003, uh, there was the the concern 
that if we said you had to have a, a private um, a prescription drug plan, there might be too many areas that didn't have any or not at least two. Uh, and that's why there was a fallback plan uh, crafted. Uh, in fact, uh, if there is any problem uh, in most eyes, it is that there are so many uh, public plans that we may be confusing uh, seniors, although they do manage, seem to be managing uh, okay, as best I can tell. Um, and so the idea here is to take that same position. Uh, to the extent that there are areas, they may be regions, they may be metropolitan areas in terms of offerings of insurance, where there are not a number of robust offerings, and I'm really more interested in the number of plans than in the dominant position of one or two big plans. If there are plan choices available, particularly if there's at least one not-for-profit uh, plan available, uh, that indicates an offering set uh, that allows people choices. Uh, where that is not true, uh, you might want to consider this co-op notion, uh, something that would have federal money as seed money to start, uh, but after that has to run on its own, has to bear financial risk, and has to meet uh, all of the state requirements of a risk-bearing entity uh, for insurance. Um, I don't know how well it would do competing to against uh, the Geisingers and the Kaisers and the Intermountain Healthcare, Puget Sounds, uh, yet alone uh, Aetna's or the United's or the Blue Plans. Uh, but if there aren't very many offerings, uh, I think it would be appropriate uh, to have a co-op and let it do uh, what it can do. Uh, that seems to me a way to try to get through this response. If what you're concerned about has been that People are discriminated against uh, because of health status. You take care of that in terms of guaranteed issue and rene of renewability. And if you're concerned that they don't have choices, you can think about the co-op uh, as a fallback to make sure that there is at least one uh, not-for-profit consumer-owned uh, choice, uh, presumably responsive uh, to individuals. Uh, but if what you're really doing is trying to have Medicare pricing, then people really need to think about what's that likely to mean. And a whole lot of the providers who have been sitting out on the sidelines better think about what it's likely to mean them when Medicare pays what appears to be 6% below cost in terms of the hospital world uh, and something substantially more than that when it comes to physicians. Because that will drive dramatic change. Good change, bad change, we'll have to see. Dramatic change, for sure. Thank you. And next we have David Hyman, the Richard Marie Corman Professor of Law and Medicine at the University of Illinois and an adjunct scholar here at Cato. Thank you, Karen. Um, so I'm going to talk about the level playing field, uh, both as metaphor and reality. But before I do that, I wanted to note I'm the only lawyer in the entire session. So we clearly don't have enough monopoly <laughs> purchasing power or monopsony. Uh, we want what the economists got, Michael. Um, so let me just start with a sort of meta point, um, which is design details matter. That is to say, uh, you've heard uh, the public plan, the public option, the government plan, depending upon the, the sort of normative implications people want to signal. Um, but people are using the same words to describe quite different phenomena. And I think actually Kathy's uh, chart shows a range of possibilities. Uh, just on this panel, the Commonwealth Fund's version of a public plan, which is what I'll call it, uh, is somewhat different than the uh, New America Foundation's plan that we'll hear about in a few moments. Um, more broadly, I think the way in which people think about a public plan uh, has a, uh, is profoundly affected by which plan they think is going to show up. Okay, is it going to be Medicare, uh, which is immensely popular among its beneficiaries, provides open-ended access uh, on a fee-for-service basis for 75% of the beneficiary population, but it's economically unsustainable in anything like its current form? And Gail, I think, has already talked about the politics of trying to do uh, cost containment or modifications to the payment system. Um, and so it purchases you know, care of highly variable quality with treatment patterns that vary all over the map. Literally. Will it be Medicaid, uh, which is strangling state budgets, but still pays so little that lots of beneficiaries have a hard time finding anyone to provide treatment? Uh, remember the case of Diamante Driver, uh, lived a few miles from here, Prince George's County, Maryland. He died, 12-year-old African-American male, died in 2007 when his mother couldn't find a dentist that accepted Medicaid to pull his abscess tooth. The Washington Post did a series on this. Congress held hearings. Um, this is a sort of common uh, 
issue with Medicaid. They pay low, they pay slow, and the result is it's hard to find people who are willing to accept them. Will it be the VA, which has had a decade of glowing press coverage uh, and good performance, by and large, in a completely closed system, completely unlike Medicare? It has a cutting-edge IT system, uh, but I would note that For three decades prior to the mid-1990s, there were a series of scandals involving the Veterans Administration and regular oversight hearings. And let's hope yesterday's oversight hearing on the VA uh, is not a precursor of more of the same. Then you can sort of keep listing plans, the FEHBP, TRICARE, the Indian Health Service, my personal favorite, the Bureau of Prisons, where people have a constitutional right to health care. Anybody want them as your public plan? Probably not. Um, So you get the idea. What you think the plan is going to look like uh, is going to have a lot to say about how you expect it to perform. Let me now turn to the way in which uh, the case for a public plan has been framed by supporters. And I approach this as somebody who does competition law uh, involving health policy. That's what I did for several years at the Federal Trade Commission. And I'm going to focus my remarks on the three M's of uh, public plan. I had a former colleague who told me that the way uh, to come up with a good title and uh, a good talk that was memorable is to pick three words that all start with the same letter uh, and then uh, use them to organize your talk. So there's going to be a test later, but the three M's are monopoly, monopsony, and maverick. Monopoly, monopsony, and maverick. First, monopoly. Proponents of a public plan argue that the market for health insurance is monopolistic and that a public plan will make the market more competitive. Okay? That claim, both of those claims are deeply problematic as a matter of competition law. The assertion that the health insurance market is monopolistic is usually based on market concentration statistics computed by the AMA on a state-by-state basis, along with some claims about the number of mergers of health insurers. And the, the figure that was shown earlier, I think, in fact, exemplifies at least the former of those strategies. Now, there are a couple of problems with this approach, as I outlined in a paper in Health Affairs that accompanied Jamie Robinson's paper that uh, was the source of that figure. Okay. The first count is counting up the number of mergers doesn't tell you anything useful. Okay. Even if you assume we're dealing with the same product market, mergers across geographic markets don't really raise antitrust issues. Mergers within geographic markets may or may not raise antitrust issues depending on the particulars, but the particulars are important. Second, Although states are a natural unit to look at, they're the basis on which we regulate health insurance, the marketplace for health insurance doesn't usually track state borders very well. And so market concentration ratios for something that isn't a market are just meaningless. Okay? They don't really help you very much in understanding what's going on in the market. Third, and um, the the figure that was shown was percentage rather than market concentration, and anybody who wants to be bored with a discussion of Herfindahl indices we can do during the Q&A, but I think the same observation applies. Concentration ratios or percentages of markets are simply a screening tool to tell you, gee, we shouldn't worry about this market, or gee, maybe we should look closer at this market to try and figure out whether there's in fact an antitrust problem. For the past three decades, across antitrust enforcers from administrations in both parties, nobody's thought that deconcentrating a market in the absence of an actual antitrust violation uh, was a strategy that would go anywhere in court or that had much to recommend itself as a general policy. Now, none of that is to suggest there aren't problems with health insurance markets, okay? nor that some markets might be oligopolistic. But you can't answer these kinds of questions in the abstract. You actually have to go and look uh, and try and figure out what's going on. Related point, if you think there is actually a monopoly problem in certain markets, then we actually have a way of dealing with that. It's called the antitrust laws. We file an antitrust suit. We go into court. We prove up our case or not if you look at the hospital merger record. Uh, And then we use the remedies that are provided by the antitrust laws, the principal one of which is structural. You break up the monopoly and restore competition to the market. Um, As far as I can tell, in the entire history of antitrust, and I checked with other people, so don't just take my word for it, no one has ever thought a plausible response to a monopoly was for the government to go in the business of providing the monopolized services. The government is currently investigating Intel and Google 
and it previously prosecuted Microsoft for antitrust violations. But I don't know anybody who thought that the correct remedy was for the federal government to go into the business of developing computer chips, web browsers, and search engines. And if they had suggested it, they'd probably have been laughed out of the antitrust bar. If you want more competition in the market for health insurance, identify barriers to entry and get rid of them. Okay? Don't assume that uh, starting a uh, situation where the government is both a competitor and a regulator is going to accomplish your intended objectives. Second, monopsony. If a public plan can rely on Medicare's purchasing power and pricing, uh, and the Commonwealth Fund, as one of its three options, has uh, quite explicitly that, it can probably underprice private insurance. Although if proponents of a public plan are right that Medicare can do that, that means that private insurers don't have the degree of monopoly power in the market that they thought they did. And that, of course, was the premise of wanting the public plan in the first place. Okay? Either of those can be true. Both of them, it's hard to see how they can be true. Leaving all that aside, let me just remind people that monopoly and monopsony are bad things. Antitrust lawyers don't think either of those are good things. So setting up a monopsony purchaser of health care services is just as bad as having a monopoly seller of health care services. You don't want to do that if you can avoid it, at least from a market-oriented perspective. So proponents seem to view monopsony purchasing power as a feature but it's actually a bug in the sort of way in which uh, computer types talk about things. Third, maverick. The claim here is that a public plan will discipline the behavior of private plans, although it's not quite clear how exactly that will happen beyond some statements about benchmarking and forcing waste out of the system and keeping private insurance companies honest. And I'm not quoting Kathy here. I'm quoting other things that people have said, Um, although I don't want to exclude you from adopting them if you would like to. Um, The difficulty here is if the public plan is subject to the same set of rules and taxes as a private plan and it can't access government subsidies, it's kind of hard to see why it's going to behave any differently than any other private plan. Okay, And it's important that we have the same sets of rules, all the same sets of rules, not because we have any particular love for the private insurance market, but because the logic of competition is the outcome of it reflects people's actual preferences. And we can't really know what those are if we weight one side of the equation heavily or unheavily with taxes and subsidies and uh, disparate uh, purchasing power. So concrete example, if we subsidize hybrids and taxed SUVs, or did the opposite. I don't think anybody would think the resulting purchasing patterns would tell us anything useful about the actual demand for hybrids and SUVs. You basically need to have them treated the same and then look at the outcome and say, oh, people really do want to fill in the blank, as opposed to, I've given you a huge sum of money to buy this, and I'm going to tax you heavily for buying this. Which one do you prefer? And think that that tells us anything useful either equal treatment on a leveling playing field or we should stop pretending that this is actually about competition and stop using the rhetoric of competition. Lower administrative costs. Uh, It's clear that Medicare has lower overhead for a couple of reasons, most of which won't apply to the public plan of the sort that we're talking about. Medicare has a monopoly on the over 65 population. It doesn't incur marketing or advertising. Those things won't apply to a public plan. It's going to be competing in an exchange Uh, It, I suppose, will have a valuable brand for some people and less so for other people, but it's going to need to make it clear to people that it's offering services. Uh, Medicare doesn't form networks and doesn't do much to control utilization and not as much as it should to control fraud. Presumably that won't apply to the public plan either. Medicare also relies on Social Security and the IRS to do some of its bookkeeping and collect its premiums. Those things won't apply to the public plan either. So it's hard to see the kind of magnitude of difference uh, in a public plan will look nearly as big as it does comparing Medicare to private plans. Now, the public plan will have some comparative advantage in overhead, or it may have some comparative advantage in overhead, but I just don't think it's going to be that large. And if you know, we, we wanted to actually know the answer to this, where we ought to look is self-funded state plans that people have offered as the sort of principal model and look at their overhead. And then we can actually compare apples to apples. Of course, the government plan might not work as hard to avoid high-cost individuals. 
which means it'll probably attract a sicker population, eliminating some of the purported cost advantages, unless, of course, you risk adjust. But the problem with doing risk adjustment, as I think the Commonwealth Fund's documents reflect, uh, is it's hard to do well, it's hard to do right, uh, and the challenge is differentiating whether costs are lower because of favorable risk selection or costs are lower because you're delivering higher quality care to a chronically ill population. And if you get that wrong, you mess up the incentives. And there's, of course, no reason for thinking regulators will favor the home team, is there? A couple of words on history, and then I'll wrap it up. Right? Okay. Uh, so we do have some experience with public plans complete, competing with private plans in the pro- insurance market, specifically in the property and casualty market. And Scott Harrington from Wharton gave a talk at AEI two weeks ago. Uh, and basically painted a pretty consistent picture. In the markets for federal crop and flood insurance, we see artificially low premiums and built-in cross-subsidies and back-end bailouts uh, of uh, government insurance companies that got into trouble and complete crowd-out of private insurers. And there are similar but less extreme patterns in the markets for state catastrophic funds for malpractice and natural catastrophes and states that run their own workers' comp fund. Given that history, it's hard to think that a public health plan, uh, public option, is going to do better. So let me conclude. The public plan, I think, has a lot more to do with the politics of health reform than it has to do with uh, health policy, although depending on how it's designed, it'll either be uh, a health policy game changer or much ado about nothing. That's my fourth M for those of you who are keeping track. What were they again? Monopoly? No, never mind. Um, I think, you know, Uh, The the right version of a public plan can get you to a one-payer system without actually having to hold a vote on it, and it's pretty clear what will happen right now if you hold a vote on it. So setting it up this way uh, can do that. Alternatively, it may just be a hammer over the heads of the private insurance companies. Don't object too much, and we'll throw this away. But I think regardless of where you come out on the logic of the public plan, uh, I, I think my take-home is similar to Victor Fuchs' take-home in the New England Journal of about three weeks ago. There are three big problems with American health care, the uninsured costs, both absolute and the trajectory, and medical error. And it's hard to think that a public plan is going to do much to address any of those three. Thank you very much. And next we have Karen Davenport, who's the Director of Health Policy over at the Center for American Progress, also known as the Cato Institute of the Progressive Movement. Thank you, Karen. Um, I'm going to take only a few minutes because it feels warm in here and we've been sitting a long time, and I think the Q&A will be a little more interesting than anything I have to say. Um, And I'm going to be a little bit of a heretic to start with and say I think all of this discussion about the public plan, while uh, the Center for American Progress and many of our allies support it and some of our allies really, really support it, um, it is a... um, you know, an unfortunate screen or camouflage for a lot of the other issues that are really important in healthcare reform. I think we're not talking very much, obviously, about how do we pay for it. We're not paying, talking very much about how do we make sure that healthcare is affordable for the individuals and families that are out there in the United States as well. Um, and you know, we have a, a lot of back and forth and um, uh, you know thunder and lightning about the public plan, but there are some other very real issues that are being missed in the in the public debate. Um, I think the the public plan has also provided some um, convenient fodder for messaging on the right, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, having you know been on a radio show as early as most recently as this morning, where people are saying how there's going to be you know no private health insurance at all, and this is a government takeover of the healthcare system, um, which you know I've read the part of the Kennedy bill that's out, and I really don't see that single-payer plan there. Um, you know, I think that, that that kind of misinformation or disinformation doesn't really help us deal with uh, the very real problems that we have in our health care system either. Um, so I'm going to talk just briefly about, you know, why are we talking about a public plan, and to then talk a little bit about, and I think it's a different a different slice on a lot of what Kathy said, so I'm going to try not to to repeat too much, but to look at what are some of the benefits, particularly to providers and to enrollees, if we're talking about a public plan. So certainly the, the proponents of a public plan are um, 
particularly interested in improving the number of choices that people have as they're choosing health insurance and improving the quality of those choices. And I think also through improving competition within insurance markets to drive down premiums for everybody, whether they are somebody who chooses a private plan or a public plan. Um, and I think that there's you know, been good writing out of, out of the Urban Institute as well as other folks about the ability of a public plan to be able to drive lower <coughs> premiums within the exchange as a whole. When I think about providers and, and what they might get out of a public plan, um, there's certainly been a lot of talk, and you know, particularly coming out of the AMA, but other places too about physicians' concerns in particular about what the payment might, rates might be for a public plan. And certainly, um, I think payment rates for physicians are probably an issue not just in public plans, but in a number of private plans. Um, I think for the public plan to be a vibrant competitor and to have the kind of network that it needs to also attract a number of enrollees, it's going to need to be paying reasonable rates to attract providers to be able to maintain that enrollment base, or else it's not, in fact, going to be the competitor that, that the, those of us on the left think that it can be. Um, but I think there are a couple other characteristics that it has that may well be very attractive to providers. Certainly, we know that a public plan can be a prompt payer. Um, I suspect that it's far more prompt than the um, dental coverage that I have at the Center for American Progress, which has not paid my dentist um, at this point um, for the last seven months since my visit in December. Um, and I think that there's a lot of advantages that, that providers can see, too, in terms of the payment reforms that... To driving towards improving quality, better managing care, emphasizing primary care for the providers who are um, doing a good job in managing their patients' care. They can do well under a public plan that has that kind of emphasis in its payment systems. And then finally, because the kind of cost control techniques that a, a public plan, of course, assuming that it's based on a, a Medicare platform, um, are not dependent upon utilization review. It's more around having a the, the type of rates that it pays and just making sure that they're adequate but not excessive, um, that the, without that kind of utilization review and the emphasis that it places on, re, on paperwork um, and the paperwork that it drives, I think that you also see reduced administrative burdens for physicians as well. Um, and I think as far as enrollees, there are a number of things that are attractive as well about a public plan. I mean, certainly the you know, thinking of the Medicare example, the broad access to providers, um, and that is, is one of the features that we would hope would be carried over to a public plan. I think also having an insurer that is always there so that, um, you know, if you move, that that is a, a you can maintain that coverage, whether you, whatever um, municipality or state or whatever that you move to, that you can keep that coverage also through life changes. Um, if you are enrolled in the public plan through your parents and then you graduate and you want to stay, that's a choice that is going to be there for you regardless um, of other choices. And I think also that doesn't pull out of markets um, and leave you also when you know it's not coming in and out of a market as we see insurance companies doing. And then certainly um, to the degree that we see a lower cost with the public plan, that that is then reflected in lower premiums and lower cost sharing um, as a whole for the enrollees who are able to join it. And then you know I think there's been a lot of discussion already about what are some of the the features that a public plan might offer to the system as a whole, and some disagreement on those, on those features as well. But I think, um, you know, perhaps in concert with the Medicare program, driving system changes and particularly payment reforms. And I appreciate what Gail had to say about how do we get from here to there. Um, the you know public administration geek in me thinks that there are a lot of important questions about how we get from here to there. Um, but nevertheless, I think that that a public plan offers um, more promise than what we've seen from the private insurance sector for, for quite some time. And then I think also, and this was alluded to a little bit as well, it may well be that the public plan attracts um, a disproportionate share of people who have higher health risks or higher health spending, and even with risk adjustment that there, there may be some unevenness there. I think actually that also enables the public plan to provide a little bit of a safety valve to the exchange and that that's in itself not a bad thing. Um, and then, as I had mentioned before, you know, certainly the focus that proponents of the public plan take in terms of competition and driving down costs um, for everybody within the exchange, that also rolls over into what is the scale of premium subsidies that we're looking at for people below a certain level of income in order to um, purchase health insurance. And um, 
potentially lowering, lowering overall costs for the taxpayer as well in health care reform. Uh, I'm going to wrap up there because I think that the subsequent conversation will be far more interesting than anything else I have in my notes. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Karen. In fact, rather than any of my questions, although I was interested in the what's going on, I mean, because there are a number of states that do have public plans, and whether there's anything that might uh, be illustrative in their experiences. But rather than ask that, I'm going to go to the audience. So, yes, sir, uh, this gentleman back here in the blue shirt. Uh, Mr. Hyman, I thought you captured everything just absolutely uh, perfectly. And I loved your analogy to work. Talk to my dean, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk after. Um, The panel was great. The um, uh, um, your analogy to workers' comp very interesting. The 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 property casualty markets, because as you know, workers' comp in every state, I think, except for Texas, is mandated. So it is effectively an entitlement program. It's it's effectively social insurance. And what we've seen in the workers' comp markets is, I think, that somewhere along the lines of. 10 of the largest 25 capitalized workers' comp insurers are public plans. They're uh, state injured workers' insurance funds that were created back in the 19-teens. And so we've seen a lot of weird dynamic in those markets in terms of we've seen crowd out. We've seen markets that have gotten quite hard and pushed uh, competitive uh, insurers out of the market. We've seen tremendous capacity issues. And workers' comp, by the way, happens to be a marketplace where the healthcare component of comp is growing about 12% a year. You're talking about a healthcare crisis. There's more of a healthcare crisis in the in the workers' comp world. So uh, if you could elaborate more, uh, you know, on that. Uh, that comparison, but I think that these concepts of, you know, an advantaged public player, uh, not-for-profit status, and by the way, it's interesting when we talk about not-for-profit as if it's somehow comforting in light of the experience we've had with not-for-profit hospitals. I thought uh, Ms. Walensky's comment was interesting in that vein, but 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 if you could elaborate more on that, that would be interesting. Um, so... Let me actually just first talk briefly to the not-for-profit thing. There's a long-standing fight in tax circles about should we be subsidizing uh, hospitals based on their institutional status as opposed to what they're actually doing. Um, and in some ways the problem is, you know, because it's a tax exemption tied to the value of the property and your income, it's worth more to wealthier hospitals and nicer suburban neighborhoods, which is sort of the classic upside-down subsidy, right? Uh, the people who are doing God's work in the inner city um, really don't get very much benefit from a tax exemption tied to the value of their property. But that, that's a separate issue. I actually don't know uh, as much about the uh, workers' comp system uh, as I do about the um, federal flood uh, and crop so I actually would, uh, you know, have to say I need to read up on that to, to say more about that. Um, for what it's worth, my uh, read from having lived in several states is that um, public plan provision of workers' comp has a, a whole additional set of corruption issues um, as opposed to a virtuous. Um, and in Illinois, we specialize in corruption. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're moving up on Louisiana on certificate of need, uh, but I'm confident we're, we're past them on workers' comp. So. I, I think, too, Gail wanted to add something on the not-for-profit question. Right. I uh, raised this uh, as uh, in the co-op because for uh, some individuals, uh, the ability to have as a choice a not-for-profit plan if there isn't one available uh, is important. I'm an economist. I look at the status mostly in terms of uh, how it is that people use the difference between revenues and expenditures and probably attach far less importance and uh, was quoted in uh, one of the uh, last of the uh, Baucus roundtables of indicating, I thought, uh, if we in fact have uh, coverage for almost all it is appropriate uh, to re-examine the not-for-profit status that is used uh, uh, for hospitals. But having said that, uh, if you have a market uh, that uh, has uh, limited uh, numbers of players uh, of, in terms of offering plans, and, and if none of them are uh, of a not-for-profit status, the having uh, a co-op uh, as an option uh, would provide uh, more choice. I, as I said, I'm 
uh, quite agnostic about what I think will actually happen. It could well be uh, the, what we saw happen in Part D, where uh, we had many players show up uh, once it was clear that there was a, uh, a newly funded uh, market p- potential there. Uh, but the notion of having it as a fallback, uh, especially because for some of the states uh, in, that are dominated by rural populations, uh, the electricity co-ops and some of the other co-ops have been uh, a very nice addition to uh, help with some of these services. So I think it's a way, if you're looking to find common ground, uh, I found that an attractive idea uh, to at least contemplate. Okay, we need to get you guys moving in, uh, in about three minutes, so I think we have time for one more question. Thank you. Uh, Bill Shake of the American Council for Healthcare Reform. Uh, just in passing, I believe you mentioned uh, you were talking about the nonprofits. I think you mentioned the Blues as being a nonprofit. I, 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 I may be wrong. I thought I remembered that the Blues were chartered by Congress as a nonprofit uh, 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 group. So I, I, I'm not sure if it's uh, uh, the Blues are not, uh, the Blues are, but some of the Blues plans have converted. Uh, for example, uh, in WellPoint now in California and Anthem. So there are still, uh, the blues are uh, state, uh, and some of the states have not-for-profit blues, and some of them uh, have converted to for-profit. When they have done so, the states have typically extracted a very large payment. The California Foundation, for example, had... That wasn't wasn't really my my question. uh, Sorry? You're talking about the public option. I was trying to figure out what you meant. I guess you were talking about a, a government plan, really, aren't you, that, that would be paid for or possibly yes. subsidized by the taxpayer, uh, correct? Well, the, there are uh, not necessarily, uh, I mean, what you, plan? but you. It, as, as a government plan? It would be a government plan would have the power of government. That is why it could, if it chose, uh, use administered pricing like Medicare. Okay, that, my, my question, it may or may not be subsidized. My, my question, and I would like any members of the panel to answer this if you'd like, uh, is there anything that would prevent the government plan or the public option from using predatory pricing? And uh, if they did this, is there anything that would prevent them from pretty much taking over the, the field and running off the, the other competitors if, if indeed they were... Uh, being subsidized by the taxpayer, and if if that were to happen, uh, would this not lead to a, uh, a a everybody going into the public option or essentially a single payer system? That's the concern that has been raised. Is that over time, uh, a public plan will undermine the viability uh, of private plans because it will exercise the power of government, setting prices lower than market because it uh, has the capacity to do so, or other um, activities. Uh, now, the, whether or not it, uh, it would do so, I think it will price control because uh, government does that when it needs money. Uh, but, but I think that's Karen a and, and Kathy might disagree, both of them, on this. Well, um, I would just say quickly, I think one of the, if your question is about how it prices its premiums in terms of predatory pricing, I think there is, you know, we have to remember that we're talking about this being a competitor within a health insurance exchange, which also has rules that all of the plans that are offering policies need to abide by, um, including how they structure their rates. And so I think that there is a, a role on the insurance regulation side that would play an important role that applies to the public plan as well as others, but Kathy probably has more to add. Uh, I'll just build, uh, there is no reason that the premium has to be subsidized, as Gail said. I mean, it could, it, but it, that's it, there the question be, they're dealing with right it, now. It's not really the question. They're, they're really talking about a competitive market where you choose a plan and the premium, it has to live off of its premium. Um, so we could subsidize the private plans too. We, we, if you're buying people into coverage, we do actually have to have a plan that will take them. I, I think um, the, um, the use of monopoly should be also looked at natural monopolies, not on the insurance side, but on the provider side. It's absolutely true that within fairly concentrated state markets in terms of private insurers, you don't see them always getting good rates. It's that the under-65 population is actually quite healthy. And Aetna, as big as it is, or WellPoint, as big as it is, will often be a very small share of the major 
hospital in town or the major specialist group in town, and they really don't have even a negotiating leverage. They have to have those people in the market. So where you see more competitive provider markets, you actually see the private rates and the Medicare rates much more similar. MedPAC has done this analysis. The high differentials are in the markets where providers are either naturally agglomerated because it doesn't make sense to have more than one center of excellence given the population side or actually merged together where all the cardiologists in town or all the surgeons. And we don't have any easy way to combat that right now unless we went did what, as Gail said, Netherlands and Switzerland and Germany have all, all given their competing private plans and a way to sit on one side of the table and, and bargain together. <laughs> Well, oh. Antitrust is the other option. Yeah. If you think that yeah. you have you, you can break them back up, and and the extent is if they actually make sense. You know, if some of what you've seen as integrated care, you actually like the result. You don't necessarily want to just break them up. You want to not enable the higher charge. So what's been happening in the private market? There's actually been a nice article written by a couple of employers is they're worried that their private carriers aren't getting them good deals because they have to just be me-toos. They can't really lower the price of the very high cost. They have to be a price taker. And then they get to charge an administrative fee that's a percent of claims. So it's um, the markup goes up with the price of care. And you, you get that complaint, particularly in some markets like in Massachusetts, where the blues will tell you they're fairly powerless against one of the dominant sellers. So, I mean, it's, it's something we'll have to confront if we're in all private, if we want to do anything to worry about the total cost of care. Uh, well, thank you very much, and we have run out of time here, although you may want to try and grab one of our panelists afterwards. But I do want to thank you all for your time this afternoon. It's been very enlightening.